3: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, October 11th. We'll return now to the Israel Hamas war. We'll focus specifically for this segment on the questions facing the United States with respect to the war, how much and what kinds of involvement should the United States have with two leading journalists, Ishan Tharoor, who covers U.S. foreign policy for The Washington Post, and Robin Wright, columnist and contributor for The New Yorker, who, among other things, is a leading expert on Iran. Her books include The Last Great Revolution, Turmoil, and Transformation in Iran. With Americans as well as Israelis among the hostages, this is definitely an immediate U.S. interest foreign policy challenge very directly right now. And it spreads out from there to a number of complicated policy decisions facing the Biden administration and Congress, if Congress can ever start doing business again with the turmoil in the House leadership. So Robin Wright and Ishan Tharoor now on the risks and benefits for all involved and the options from a U.S. foreign policy perspective. Among Ishan's recent articles is a Washington Post news analysis headlined, Biden hope, hoped for a quiet Middle East, so much for that. And among Robin's recent New Yorker pieces, an almost prescient one from last month, headlined, Freedom for Five Americans Doesn't End Flashpoints with Iran. Robin and Ishan, it's awful that it's under these circumstances, but welcome back to WNYC. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Robin, I'm going to dive right in on your September article that I just mentioned. Remind people of the prisoner exchange with Iran just recently that freed five Americans?
1: Yes, the Iranians in the United States, through intermediaries, swapped five prisoners, each country releasing five. Uh, The United States also issued a waiver on South Korea, which allowed it to pay back Iran $6 billion, it owed Tehran for oil that it had purchased. Uh, the United States did not give any money to uh, to Iran, and the, the funds that were released were deposited in a bank in Qatar, which will monitor all Iranian requests and handle all Iranian re- requests for use of those funds for humanitarian purposes. But let me just say, as someone who's covered all the dramatic hostage seizures since the takeover of the U.S. Embassy in 1979 and all the hostage seizures when I lived in Beirut, that the human drama that comes out of taking a human life physically while they're still alive uh, can drag on for far longer than a military conflict. These are, uh, this gives Hamas extraordinary leverage in what it demands. Remember that Uh, Israel once engaged in its own swap for one Israeli soldier named uh, Gilad Shalit, uh, and in exchange released almost 1,100 prisoners. So uh, with more than 100 lives, maybe even up as as many as 150, the price exacted for their release is likely to be very steep.
3: And the premise of your article is that the prisoner swap that just took place would almost certainly not stop a tactic used by Iran for more than four decades. You're right. Now, in fairness, we don't know the extent or nature of Iranian involvement with these terror attacks by Hamas. But do you have reason to believe that there's a line from freeing American hostages one month to taking new ones such a short time later in the next?
1: No, I think one of the problems with uh, Iran and its proxies is that it has proven effective to take hostages particularly westerners because it can exact some price one of the you know huge problems is also the the militias in the middle east are not conventional armies and they're willing to do engage in activities that violate every basic international law on warfare Um, And in the end, as the United States learned in Afghanistan and Iraq, fighting militias, even if they're ragtag militias that are poorly armed, have minimal training, is much tougher than fighting a state where you know where the address is, what the goals are, how to engage in any kind of diplomatic resolution. So, you know, my fear is that this gets this war between Israel and Hamas gets very messy and has multiple layers to it not just on the ground, and also the big question about what happens the morning after. And I think that's where, where there's not enough thinking right now.
3: And we'll get to that angle, which you wrote in another New Yorker article. But Ishan, what can you report that the Biden administration is doing with respect specifically first to the American hostages currently being held by Hamas?
2: Well, uh, forgive me, I, I, my details and understanding of what's happening in those negotiations is, is not particularly specific. There's a lot happening in the background. We know that um, other governments are also involved using what connections they have to Hamas to try to to negotiate something. The Qataris, the Egyptians um, are playing a role in some of these talks. But Hamas has been saying that you know, as long as their are rockets firing into Gaza, as long as there are Israeli airstrikes pounding Gaza... Uh, we're not really going to move on this. Uh, there's, it's a very tense uh, game that's being played out right now uh, all the while, while uh, Israel is wrapping up for what looks to be a really major and protracted ground offensive into the Gaza Strip where these hostages are located. Uh, so so it's it's pretty fraught right now.
3: Is the challenge of the hostage-taking different for the U.S. administration than if it was only Israelis, if there were no U.S. nationals who were seized? Or is it the same policy challenge?
2: Uh, I mean, I, I think the scale of what's happened, we're not talking about, you know, one, one person. We're talking about, you know, more than a dozen. We're talking about over 100 Israeli hostages. We're talking about, uh, I mean, the whole context is unprecedented vis-a-vis, um, you know, Israel's own turbulent history of conflict. So uh, on one hand, it, it's a staggering challenge. On the other, the fact that it's such a, a an unprecedented moment, uh, perhaps gives the U.S. a bit of space to uh, to to kind of rally around Israel and press forward.
3: Robin, this this is perhaps the most pressing challenge: uh, the hostages ahead of longer term goals of preventing future such attacks, because the hostages are being held right now. And we know Hamas is very willing to kill people. With the diplomatic channels opened through the prisoner swap, could Iran actually be a key to securing their release? Or should we assume they're not interested in playing any role like that?
1: Well, Iran has been complicit in everything that Hamas has done. Uh, The U.S. intelligence, again, just today said their initial indications are that Iran did not play a direct role. But, you know, since the late 1980s, when Hamas was formed, Iran has played a role in financially supporting, uh, supplying arms, diplomatically backing and coordinating among its so-called axis of resistance. So Iran is playing a role in this conflict, even if indirectly, in having helped create this and train this extraordinary uh, militia. Iran may play some background role. I mean, this is where you get into Qatar and Oman and Egypt all weighing in and saying, Iran, use your influence on Hamas to release the hostages. This is very complicated because the United States doesn't, or Israel, they don't have, you know, diplomatic relations with a militia in Gaza. Uh, and so figuring out how to negotiate this is going to be much more complicated than negotiations over the five Americans who were held uh, in Tehran's Evin prison.
3: Ishan, your article in the Washington Post headlined, Biden hoped for a quiet Middle East, so much for that. In that article, you write that Biden had hoped to keep the Middle East at arm's length as president, preferring to focus on China and then the invasion of Ukraine once that began. What did arm's length look like before this?
2: Well, I think, you know, the Biden administration came to office um, really charged up about pursuing the so-called foreign policy for the middle class, um, reorienting American strategic interests around a sense of its place in the global economy, as opposed to kind of the two-decade legacy of the war on terror that you know has accumulated over these years. And uh, that looked, and and then I think at the same time they also recognized that the Middle East was was really complicated and made all the more complicated by certain decisions uh, by the Trump administration. And I think first and foremost, when you look at what they saw in Israel, um, they, they saw a situation where kind of the ghost of the two-state solution um, was was barely floating around at this point. Uh, they saw a situation at that time when Benjamin Netanyahu was out of office and there was um uh, a kind of motley coalition government that they could potentially work with, but they embraced the process that the Trump administration had begun of these normalization deals, not necessarily because they they were that invested in the normalization deals per se, but, but because it seemed like a, uh, a, a, a a vehicle through which the Middle East would sort itself out. You know, an administration official specifically told me once that we think the Middle East is sorting itself out. and and you could see that say in the way Saudi Arabia and Iran, Achieved a kind of rapprochement that was facilitated by the Chinese. That was a bit awkward in Washington, but if you talked to Biden administration folks, they didn't mind so much. Uh, and then you could see that uh, the situation in in vis-a-vis the Israelis and the Palestinians was deeply complicated. Uh, you you saw eventually when Netanyahu came back to power, an extremist right wing government uh, really inflaming the situation in the West Bank. But as far as the Biden administration was concerned. It didn't feel like it had the levers it could really pull to change Netanyahu's behavior or the behavior of Netanyahu's allies. And uh, it didn't want to expand the political capital that would be necessary to push them, because, partially because of domestic politics here. And and it was focused on China, and it's focused on the war in Ukraine. And uh, the headache and the intractable kind of challenge of uh, figuring out what to do uh, with this Marban peace process between Israelis and Palestinians. That was not something that this administration wanted to take on at all. And now it has to live with the consequences of that.
3: And yet, whatever leverage they did have, they seem to be expending toward these normalization deals that you were just describing, such as the one that was in the works with Saudi Arabia. And in fact, I want to linger on this for a minute. Um, I want to play a clip of a moment on this show last Thursday. So that was two days before Hamas attacked. My Mm -hmm. guest was former New Jersey congressman and former Obama assistant secretary of state for democracy and human rights, Tom Malinowski. And I asked him about the deal Biden was brokering for Saudi recognition of Israel. And my question, as you'll hear, asks if the Palestinian question was being marginalized too much in that possible deal. This clip begins with my question. If the United States is pushing the Arab countries to normalize with Israel to form a unified front against Iran, which is, I think, one of the U.S. main foreign policy concerns in that context, Um, but it leaves the Palestinians without those Arab countries to withhold normalization until something happens for the Palestinians, um, then maybe that's not morally correct choice either for the United States. It ignores one of the key interests there too much, perhaps, uh, people are alleging. What's your view on that?
4: Saudi Arabia should have recognized Israel decades ago. If Saudi Arabia were to recognize Israel now, that would be great. If it recognized Israel alongside a resumption of the Israeli peace process with the Palestinians, a resumption of the two-state solution. That would be even better. And it would be a huge breakthrough, a huge win for the Biden administration if they could broker that kind of deal. The problem is that the Saudis are also demanding something else. They are demanding, as part of this deal, a defense treaty with the United States that would be akin to what we have with our NATO allies, with Japan, with South Korea, a legally binding promise that the United States will defend Saudi Arabia forever if it is attacked.
3: Tom Malinowski on last Thursday's show. Again, that was before Hamas attacked. So Robin Wright, all Malinowski said there was it would be even better if a two-state solution was brought back into the equation as part of brokering brokering, a deal for Saudi recognition of Israel. Do you know if it was in the way that deal was actually shaping up?
1: The United States senior U.S. officials even said over the weekend in a briefing with some of us that the deal was still a long ways off. And I think Tom Malinowski was absolutely correct when he said it was not just rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which would have been the biggest breakthrough in peace because Saudi Arabia is the guardian of Islam and Islam's holy places. But it also would have required that the United States basically fight any wars or provide all protection for Saudi Arabia indefinitely, as we do with NATO countries. And that's a non-starter for a, for an autocratic regime, you know, in a volatile region. I think that's, you know, that's that aspect of it was, was problematic, even while the first part, a, a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia would have been of a wonderful achievement for the Biden administration. But I think, again, there are a lot of assumptions about how close it was. And uh, I, I don't think it was imminent. I think that the Biden administration did look at this as a way to extend the Abraham Accords. And basically, if Saudi Arabia agreed to recognize Israel, a lot of other Arab countries that have resisted so far would also have fallen in place. But the cost would have been high for the United States indefinitely.
3: And would it have done anything for the Palestinians' aspirations for a state, or would it have marginalized that issue and made it even less relevant?
1: I, th- that's one possibility, and the the I just don't know that it was going to lead to anything tangible. The you know we've I've covered pe- the peace process now for fifty years, and every time you think you're close to something, it falls apart because, mm-hmm. uh, and so. Again, if as part of the deal, there had been an acceptance of the future of a Palestinian state. But remember, the Palestinians weren't included in this deal. Again, it would have been the next step. It's a little bit like the United States doing a deal on the ta- Taliban, but, but not including the Afghan government. You know, those kinds of arrangements, when they're not all inclusive, have a propensity to fail.
3: Ted in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with journalists Robin Wright from The New Yorker and Ishan Tharoor from The Washington Post. Hi, Ted. Thank you for calling in.
0: Hi, I have something very controversial, but if you were to look at the history of, and I'm talking about just the plight of the Jews here, if you're looking at the history of um, how the Jews are persecuted or captured or whatever, in this case, kidnapped, um, during Auschwitz and some of the other uh, concentration camps, they were interviewed afterwards and asked if, if the allies allies could have come in and bombed those camps to prevent future deaths. Almost, I think, unanimously, everyone said they would have sacrificed themselves for that. So my controversial view is that while it's absolutely horrible and everyone wants their loved ones to come home, I think we have to not negotiate with the people who has kidnapped these people. And Not at at all. And call them collateral damage. But for the future of the play of the Jews going forward, you have to almost not accept any negotiation because it just incentivizes future kidnaps in the future.
3: Ted, thank you very much. And Ishan, that, of course, is a heartbreaking scenario to contemplate. But I think Ted does put his finger on a very real policy dilemma for anyone in a hostage situation. Uh, do you incentivize more hostage-taking by giving the hostage-takers anything in a negotiation for the hostage's release? Is the Biden administration grappling with that d- dilemma in any particular way that uh, that you know of?
2: I, mean, I, think, I think, obviously, these are very pressing and emotional considerations that are on the plates of a lot of policymakers here. Sure. I think even more so for the Israelis, of course, uh, the the Israelis have already set the precedent, you know, as as Robin mentioned earlier, with the the episode surrounding Gilad Shalit, of you know one person for hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, and I think Hamas um, appears to want a similar kind of ratio of releases, because uh, there are you know hundreds of Palestinian prisoners kept in for various reasons in various contexts uh, in Israel, uh, so. Uh, I think, but but also we are in a scenario that is fast moving. And um, uh, the the suggestion that, you know, Israel or whoever should be bombing and pummeling the Gaza Strip and accept uh, the collateral damage of hostages and civilians there, uh, that's a pretty controversial statement. And I, I don't know if there are others that would necessarily agree with that.
3: I want to play a clip of President Biden from his speech yesterday, and obviously he was expressing nothing but solidarity with the Israelis. But he also did raise this that he said he told to uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu.
0: I told him, the United States experience what Israel is experiencing our response would be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. We also discussed how democracies like Israel and the United States are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law.
3: So, Robin, how do you hear that portion uh, of Biden's speech yesterday? Is he warning Netanyahu against acting within the laws of war? Is he asking him what's the relationship there and what do you think Biden wants?
1: Well, in the past, when we've had these kind of skirmishes or smaller skirmishes between Hamas and Israel, the White House has said in strong language, they want restraint by everyone. And you didn't hear that in President Biden's uh, mm-hmm. speech yesterday. Uh, so I, you know, I think there's a deep concern in Washington about how this war could degenerate into something that is such a pure bloodbath. I mean, you've had over 2,000 that have been killed on both sides of the divide already, and how many more will die down the road. And I think he was talking to both movements, or both sides when he you know, talked about, mentioned the rules of war. Uh, I, but again, it's very striking that he did not call for the kind of restraint and allowed and encouraged um, Prime Minister Netanyahu to act with force and decisive decisiveness.
3: And so, Ishan, I'll give you the last word for you who covers U.S. foreign policy explicitly. Um, Congress or the House, I should say, may or may not elect a new speaker for today. Are there implications for the U.S. response to the situation in Israel right now of this vacancy?
2: I would not overstate it. I I think... um, Right now, the U.S. Is, has a pretty easy role insofar as it's it's rallying by, behind Israel, offering a show of unity. It's very easy for any Washington politician to do. The big questions, as Robin alluded to, are, are you know, even after, if if Hamas is defeated, even after this war ends, um, the fundamental issue of what happens between the Israelis and Palestinians, how do you reckon with the absence of a Palestinian state, with the absence of Palestinian rights? Uh those are challenges that all U.S. politicians, the majority of Congress, have put their heads in the sand about for decades or for years, and and that needs to be addressed if you know there's going to be any actual peace.
3: Ishan Tharoor, foreign policy correspondent for the Washington Post and Robin Wright, contributing writer and columnist for The New Yorker and joint fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and the U.S. Institute of Peace. That's our conversation for today on U.S. foreign policy choices with respect to what's going on in Israel and Gaza now. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Brian.